Good morning. Uh, If you have a Bible, I'd ask you to open it up to Ephesians chapter 5. It's where we're going to begin this morning. Ephesians 5, we're going to start in verse 15. So if you would please stand with me as we read God's word together. Father God, we ask that you would open our eyes now to your word, uh, that you would speak to us, to our hearts. Uh, Use this time, Father, we pray to to teach us, to mold us, to convict us. Um, We're grateful for all that you have done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is God's inspired word for us this morning. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the truth to himself, in, the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle in any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is God's inspired word for us this morning. Please be seated. Now, I shared with you before, um, if, if you've been around here for a little while, some of um, one of the cool features that we love about our neighborhood is this, this little, these retention ponds um, that are around the outside and kind of in the middle throughout. I shared before about how my daughter fell riding her bike into the pond and how that was such a, lo- a lovely experience um, for us, not necessarily for her. Uh, this last week, early in the morning, every morning I, I take the dog out for a walk because we have a very destructive little eight-month-old puppy that if she does not get her walk every morning, she's just going to go and destroy something else in the house. So I've got to take her on a walk every morning, and we'll go around the ponds, and um, typically we'll see some sort of cool wildlife. You know, there's some turtles out there. There's maybe some ducks or blue herons, some geese. We've even seen some deer on occasion. Uh, so this last week, early in the morning, we're out walking, and, and I looked down, and I, and I just happened to see. Um, you won't be able to see this very closely. This is about a four-foot alligator. Okay, if I, I, it stopped me dead in my tracks. I looked down, and I see this, and, I'm, and I just froze, okay? And now, 
it's, it's perfectly still, just kind of sitting there, eyes shut. And, and just before she had gotten on the bus that morning, Kayla and I had been talking about cold-blooded animals and how they don't need to move or breathe as much as warm-blooded animals do. And I was explaining to her the difference of that. So I looked down, and there is this alligator just a few feet away from me. And so the, I immediately uh, backtrack. I go back to my house as quick as I can. We usually would take about a mile walk. Um, I go back, and my intention is I'm going to get my gun and kill this thing, okay? Um, so I, I, I take the pic. I, I've got my phone. Of course, I took a picture of it before I did anything else. Um, and I show one of my neighbors on the way back, and he's going, oh, my gosh, I can't believe that. Um, and I, I get back to the house, and I show Megan, and she's going, what are we going to do? I said, I'm going to get my gun. She said, that's a terrible idea. I said, what do you think we should do? She said, well, first, we need to go see if it's real. And second, we should, we should alert animal control and then the media. <laughs> I said, yeah, that sounds like a better plan than mine. So, um, so now we're on our way out. We've got our, our one-year-old. We've got our four-year-old. We've got her, and I've got a, a, a chunk of hickory about the size of my fist. Okay, that's going to be my weapon of choice now against this alligator. And we're sneaking up uh, down the path, and it's, you know, I swear it's, it's in just a little different position than when I saw it before. Again, I stopped cold. I, I, I kind of cocked my arm back to throw this a chunk of hickory at it to see if somehow I can kill it when I notice something peculiar on the back of the alligator. And I get a little bit closer, and, and I can barely make it out, but there in faint black lettering is the words decoy. <laughs> so no longer now am I super concerned about the dangerous threat that this alligator is proposing to my neighborhood, uh, now I'm a little bit concerned about how foolish I look for sneaking up to kill a, dead al- a, a statue of an alligator. You know, it turns out that the neighbor had seen geese back in the pond, and he put the alligator out as a deterrent to keep the geese from nesting. Okay? And, 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 and so this morning, we're going to be talking about how sometimes our expectations don't meet the reality of the situation. Okay, and sometimes the results of that are just straight-up comedy. Okay, that we have the wrong expectation about what something really is, and it's just very comedic. Um, and other times, the results are tragic. Okay, think, think of the Titanic. Think of what happens when you're driving a massive boat and, and a, a piece of ice that's only a tenth visible above the water, and you're driving in a, a supposedly unsinkable ship and you're headed straight for it. And what happens when the expectation and the reality are two very different things? Now, last week, Randy shared with us a lot of statistics about what marriage and cohabitation looks like in our culture. Um, and if you were not here, I can just summarize this by saying um, things don't look very good, okay? Things don't look very good. Our expectations And our reality are two very different things. So this morning we're going to talk about a few of these expectations and some of the realities of what what marriage ought to be and what it looks like today. Here's one of our expectations. The first expectation today is that committed lifelong marriage is an impossible standard. Okay, that committed lifelong marriage is an impossible standard. See, increasingly Western modern society views lifelong monogamy as impossible. And some people go, even go a step further and would say that this is an unnatural expectation. 
You know, before we used to think, okay, well, there's actually several species of animals that we could point to as having these lifelong monogamous relationships, just like humans. And now scientists are saying, actually, most of those aren't really true after watching them further. You know, they, they take different partners from time to time. Um, there's only one species that has been uh, identified to, to practice lifelong monogamy, which is the Schistoma mansoni, which is a parasitic worm that can sometimes live inside of us. Okay, that's the one species of animal that has been shown to have lifelong monogamous relationships. And so the thinking then goes, well, if the animal kingdom can't even do it, then it's impossible or it's unnatural for humans to do it. And if we look at things like the statistics that Randy shared with us last week, where over 50% of marriages are ending divorce, which... uh, to be fair, only 41% of first-time marriages are ending in divorce. But if, if you think about that going into marriage, you, you might be thinking, well, you know what, let's, let's just be honest and realistic. You know, the chances of this being something that lasts forever are not that great. You know, so in response, some married couples, I've been to a, a couple weddings like this, have started changing some of the vows. You know, sometimes you would hear, until death do us part, this being replaced with, as long as our love may last. Now, the implication here is that whenever the love is gone or whenever the happiness is gone, well, then so am I. And yet, amazingly, amazingly, even though we don't seem to need this long-term commitment, even though we seem to think that it's unrealistic, according to statistics, 73% of divorcing couples claim that lack of commitment is the reason why they're divorcing. Okay, this is the highest uh, response of any. They give them a big list. They could check all the things that applied to them. Lack of commitment was number one. Now, remember God's design and his reason for marriage. We looked at it back in Genesis from Moses. Okay, we looked at it with Christ. And now we see it again here with Paul. What was God's design? He said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. You know, hold fast, which is to cleave or to be glued or bonded together in such a way that what was now two, that what was once two is now one. You know, God designed marriage and in such a way as to be this inseparable bond. You know, Scripture says, what God has joined together, let no man separate. So if we think about it as glue, this is like super glue, right? And not Elmer's glue. And my mom actually used to work with somebody that, that her veneers would fall out of her mouth and she would attempt to reattach them with Elmer's glue, which is water-soluble. Okay, And so that is kind of what we do to marriage. If we take away the expectation of lifelong commitment, we're taking what ought to be a permanent bond and taking it with something that's much more easily broken. You know, if, we're design, if we are deceived into believing that marriage is something that was never designed to be, then the results can be tragic. And some commentators say that it takes at least a decade to begin to experience and understand the true intimacy that marriage brings. You know, why just a decade? What well, takes us past that initial phase uh, where it's just about how you feel And after a decade, you've had to deal with a lot of the difficulties of life together. When I talk with teenagers about relationships, um, I always tell them about the realities and the dangers of infatuation, right? And and you don't really know the person that you're together with until you've been with them for at least a couple years. 
Because at the beginning, it's just that infatuation, that emotion that takes over. But at some point, that infatuation wears off, that emotion leaves, and then what is there left? Well, the biblical definition, biblical understanding of love is so important here. It talks about husbands loving your wives. So the biblical definition of love is not dependent on circumstances or emotion. Right? It's not dependent on circumstance or emotion. In Ephesians 5, Paul commands husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. See, that's the model and the example that's given. And Paul actually had a choice. He could, in Greek, he could use several different words for love. You know, there's a family love. There's a brotherly love. There's a kind of a friendly affection. And then there's this word that Paul uses here, which is agape, or self-sacrificial love. And it's modeled for us in the example of Jesus. See, John chapter 15, verse 13, Jesus says that greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. See, if we're supposed to lay down our lives for our friends, we're supposed to obviously do the same command applies to our spouses. But, but oftentimes after the affection wears off, you spend so much time together that two people, that this relationship started out with such this passionate romance with total infatuation with one another, now they can't even stand each other. They can't even be in the same room together. They're not even friends. So what is the Christian supposed to do after the romantic affections fade. One word, persevere. You know, Gary Thomas writes that true Christian spirituality has always emphasized perseverance. Has always emphasized perseverance. You know, according to the latest statistics, the average length of marriage that ends in divorce is about eight years. And Thomas argues that that divorcing after such a short amount of time is like baking a cake but pulling it out of the oven when it's about halfway done and judging it based on what what it looks like then before you allow it to actually turn into a cake. And, And this isn't just about staying in something to torture each other or just to fulfill a Christian duty or a Christian obligation, but to realize that there's something better coming up ahead. You know, Tim Keller notes that 60% of married couples count themselves as very happy. And for the 40% that don't, two-thirds of these unhappy relationships will become happy within five years if they simply stay together. That's it. If you stay married within five years, you're likely, your unhappiness is likely to turn happy just by staying together. So it's not this masochistic thing. It's not something where we're asking people to torture themselves. But it's the idea that God's design is not a slow-moving, is not a, 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 a fix, quick fix. This is something that's designed for the long haul. Because emotions are so fickle. You know, scripture tells us that the heart is what? Deceitful above all things. And there's going to be difficult times in any relationship. Times of hurt, times of betrayal, times of disappointment. There's going to be times when the reality no longer matches the expectation that we had in the beginning. And the command during those times is simply to hold fast to one another. And marriage is so much like faith in this regard. You know, what does Jesus tell his disciples a little bit earlier in John chapter 15? He tells them to remain in me. Okay, to abide in me, to remain in me. And what's the promise? If you remain in me, then you will bear fruit. The Christian life is about perseverance just like marriage. 
You know, sometimes all a couple can do is simply just to hold fast to one another. Sometimes all we can do is cling to Christ and our faith. And sometimes that's, that's enough. And the, expect, the second expectation that we see a lot is that marriage is designed to make me happy. Okay, there's a lot of husbands snickering right now. Um, when the reality is that marriage is designed to make us holy, happiness and holiness. Uh, Gary and Betsy Ricucci uh, wrote a book called Love That Lasts. They write this, One of the best wedding, get, wedding gifts that God gave you was a full-length mirror called your spouse. Had there been a card attached, it would have said, here's to helping you discover what you're really like. Okay? And, and so in this way, marriage functions much the same way as the law of God does. It serves at a mirror, as, as a mirror. And the, and, the, and the simple fact is that we might not always like what we see looking back at us in the mirror. Oftentimes we don't see ourselves for who we really are. We have an, un, an unrealistic expectation of, of who we are. And yet we get into these relationships where we have someone that, that, that reflects to us accurately what we look like, and we might get a little bit upset. You know, a few weeks ago I was rocking a really awesome beard. I don't know if you guys saw me. Um, it was the longest beard I've ever had in my life. I, I grew it from like Christmas until um, you know, mid-February. And it was nice and, and bushy, and, and the reason I had it was because Megan and the girls liked it, so I kept it. And, and then Megan said one day, hey, maybe you should trim your beard. And I thought, okay, if she, if she says to trim it up, I'll, I'll trim it. So I, I, put my gar- I get my beard trimmer out, which I've always had, never had a chance to use it. And, and um, so I put, it, I, I put it on guard number three, and I go to try to kind of trim it up. And I'm just kind of looking down, I'm amazed at how much hair is falling off into the sink. Um, and then I take a look in the mirror, and I realize that one half of my face has a beard, and the other half of my face no longer has a beard. You know, my guard had slipped from a number three to a number one, which, if you've ever got your hair cut, is a pretty big uh, difference, right? You know, but I, I didn't get upset with the mirror for shaving my face. I got upset with myself for thinking, wow, how stupid can you be for, for not taking something so seriously, you know, what happens uh, in marriage is that we have this mirror, somebody that reflects back who we really are, and oftentimes we don't like what we see because we're exposed to a different part of who we are, right? You know, if I'm upset with my mirror, do I trade it, do I trade it in? Or do I go get another mirror that, that, that makes me look better than the one that I currently have? Or, or do, I, do I go back and ask, well, what's wrong with me? What is it that I'm doing? The Word of God functions the same way as well. When we read it, when we study it, what we find out is that oftentimes some of the words make us uncomfortable because we see that there are things that God has commanded that we don't necessarily like to do. And there are things, maybe there's ways that we are living that do not align with God's standard because we're not doing what it tells us to do. It shows us to be the sinners for who we really are. And so the natural response then is, to, is simply to put it down. And to not look at it anymore, to not worry, I don't want to feel guilty, so I'm just going to set it aside and not read it. I'm going to find something else then, or maybe someone else that will affirm who I really am. Okay? And that's dangerous. To find somebody who really loves me. The simple fact that it is never loving to affirm sinful behavior. Okay? It's, it's never loving. Not in our children, not with our friends, not with our spouses. And Timothy Keller writes that we are always, always the last to see our self-absorption. 
We're always the last. You know, Jesus says the same thing when he says to take the log out of your eye before you worry about the speck in someone else's. And what is the standard then? What, what, what's the standard that we aim for both in faith and in marriage? Well, the standard is holiness. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16, Peter writes that as obedient children do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. You know, what is the standard then for Christian conduct? It's holiness. Some, tra- some translations uh, translate this as to be perfect as I am perfect. You know, the standard is the standard. The standard is perfection. The standard is holiness. And, and the reality is we, we know that and we see these things in the mirror. We see it in God's word. We see it in our spouses. We notice things we've never noticed before. Sometimes we notice things about the other person that we've never noticed before. You know, we, we start to see things like impatience or bitterness or selfishness or pride or, or apathy. And the list goes on and on. These things that never used to bother us, but now all of a sudden they do. And that doesn't mean that our spouses should lower their standard for who we are or that we should lower our standard for who they are. But it means looking into that mirror, using that gift that God has given us to help us to affect change in our life. You know, last week Randy shared from Hebrews chapter 13 when he read, Let the marriage bed be held in high honor among all. Let marriage be held in high honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. Okay, so it's the, that's our standard, that's our pattern to live up to. And sometimes it's easy to look at someone else and think, well, well gosh, they failed in this big way. But then if we look at the words of Christ, we see that he takes that standard and makes it even higher than we would like it to be. You know, how is the marriage bed defiled? Not just by physical acts. You know, Jesus says that a man who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Adulterer in his heart. And how is it honored? Jesus said again that you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. You know, how many Christian spouses have committed adultery and murder against their spouses in their hearts? You know, Jesus has a very high view of the law. And so what he's telling us is that we're even more sinful than we realize and then when we start, start spending time around somebody, uh, we're, we're, we're caught between you know, this, this already, this uh, you know, Christ has come, and the not yet, the, the, the return of Christ. And we live in this sinful, fallen world, and our nature is broken. And so it's important to understand these two realities about marriage. Uh, the first thing is that you are marrying a sinner. And the second thing is that you are a sinner. So if you get two sinners and you put them together for life, what are you going to have? <laughs> you might have some problems. Fortunately, in Romans chapter 5, it says that where sin increase, grace abounds. And the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace 
abounded all the more. You know, Timothy Keller describes the gospel in this amazing way. He says that we're more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we're more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared to hope. You know, for the Christian couple, then, marriage is this incredible way to demonstrate the grace of God, to see it lived out every day. And I can talk about her because she's not here this morning. But, you know, but Megan, I, when I think about her, it reminds me of this so often. You know, here's a person that knows me better than anybody else. She sees all my sin, all my flaws. Yet every day, what does she tell me? I love you. That's a picture of what Christ does with us. Someone who knows us. He knows everything about us. He knows not just our actions, but our thoughts and our hearts. And yet he loves us. This incredible love that Christ has for us. We get a picture in marriage. And we're then called not just to love our spouses that way, but to love everyone that way. Here's expectation number three. Is that marriage should be easy. Marriage should be easy. Now, raise your hand if you've ever watched a Disney princess movie before. <laughs> just, about every, just about everybody. You know, how does every Disney princess movie end? They get married and they go and live happily ever after. Happily ever after. You know, we see marriage is often seen as the end goal, the ultimate prize, instead of the beginning of a journey. Now, for those of you who like sports, the NFL draft is coming up at the end of April. You know, right now, the athletes are working harder than they've ever worked before. You see that Auburn Pro Day, the Alabama Pro Day, every year these um, they take these guys from college teams, they put them into, you know, into to NFL teams. Several years ago, for those of you who are, who are sports fans, you might remember the name Jamarcus Russell. First overall pick of the NFL draft, drafted by the Oakland Raiders, came out of uh, LSU. He could throw 65 yards in the air from his knees. Okay. Incredible physical specimen. And yet he saw the NFL draft as the ultimate goal. He's picked number one overall. This is the achievement of his lifetime. And then he stopped working. You know, his coaches actually, they, they, they suspected that he didn't take his job very seriously. So they took game film or game plans and, and their strategy, and they would send it home with him on DVDs and ask him to look it over. And to come back the next morning, they'd ask him how he liked it. He said, oh, I like it a lot. They sent him home blank discs. You know, he never even put it in to see what was on it. You know, what happens when we take what should be the beginning of a journey, we make that our end goal. But so oftentimes, that's what we do in marriage. We take something, this is designed to be, a, again, a lifelong journey together, and yet we spend $35,000 on a wedding, and we stop the work after that. That's just on average, 35000 is the average. Um, you know, and so, but people see this. They see that, that life together, that, that marriage is difficult. And so what we, what we find now is that, like Randy talked about last week, fewer and fewer people are even attempting marriage because they think it's too difficult. Fewer and fewer people are attempting it because they see the realities of the marriages of their friends, maybe their parents, um, other people that they know, because they desire to live for this happily ever after, and they see that marriage is not bringing that. And the reality is that marriage is difficult. The Apostle Paul, again, in 1 Corinthians 7, he writes, But if you do marry, you have not sinned. If betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I'd spare you from that. You know, so marriage brings trouble. It absolutely does. Again, we took two sinful people, we put them together, and we told them to make it work, right? 
Because this is, this is a lifelong commitment. So we want things that are easy. We want things that make us feel good and, and that bring us happiness and sunshine and roses and butterflies and all that junk. Uh, but the reality is that even the best marriages take work. They're not always going to be blissful. You know, again, it's, it's the exact same thing in our spiritual life. Our spiritual life doesn't stop when we come to faith in Christ. That's when it starts. That's when the good work that God, that God has created us to do, that's when the good work begins in us. It's the beginning of a process of a lifetime pursuing holiness. You know, what does Jesus say? Matthew chapter 7, he says, that Enter by the narrow gates... For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. G.K. Chesterton put it this way. He said that the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. It has been found difficult and left untried. The problem then with God's design for marriage is not a lack of design, but it's a lack of desire. And just because things are difficult at times doesn't mean that those things aren't worth pursuing. And in fact, in life, the most fulfilling things are often the things that are the most difficult to do. Theodore Roosevelt wrote that nothing in the world is worth having or worth doing unless it means effort, pain, and difficulty. I've never in my life envied a human being who led an easy life. I've envied a great many people who led difficult lives and led them well. And Gary Thomas writes, a good marriage is not something you find, but it's something you work for. Okay, it's not something that just comes about by accident. You know, what does James tell us about faith? That faith without works is what? It's dead. Your marriage is like faith that requires work. You know, a marriage without work, it's dead. Having the wrong expectations can set us up so often for the wrong goals, which sets us up for not comedy, but tragedy. One of my favorite Christian singers, um, Derek Webb, got divorced about four years ago. At the time it came out, he had uh, just kind of announced a little statement. He and his wife were both musicians, so it was kind of a big deal in the Christian music world. They said they weren't really going to get into it, weren't really going to talk about it very much. About a year later, he wrote... Um, kind of a, a big, long piece to, to a lot of his fans, admitting that it was his fault that he had been unfaithful with his wife. And he, he writes this incredible letter, but his desire was to show other people that his expectation did not meet his reality. This is what he writes. He says, you might be a man or woman reading this even now, finding yourself exactly where I was two years ago, seriously considering choices that could destroy your life, your family, and maybe yourself. If that's you, please listen to me. What you think you want, what you think you can have, is not real. And you'll lose real things pursuing it. As an unfortunately and extremely reliable source, please Believe me. You know, what is it that we want in both our faith and our marriages? Do our expectations meet the realities of what those things will be like for us? Or are they just setting us up to find failure down the road? 
Are they setting us up for pain and confusion and failure? And if that's you, whether that's in your faith or it's in your marriage, I just want you to remember one thing. You know, remember again that you are more loved and accepted in Christ than you ever dared to hope for. So let's pray. Father God, so often the expectations of the things that we want don't line up with what actually happens. God, those can be confusing, they can be painful, they can be at times funny. Uh, but, but Lord, we, we desire to have the right expectations for, for both our faith and for marriage as you have designed it to be. Uh, Lord, let us not get caught up in, in emotion. Let us not have unrealistic expectations of who we are or who someone else is. But Father, let us look to the pattern that you have set for us in Christ who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, the result being that many would come to glory. So, Father, we thank you for this gift of grace. We thank you for all that you have done for us. We ask, Father, that you would use this to inspire us in our walk with you, in our walks with each other. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.